0: Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady, and I'm here with my illustrious co-host, Matt Scott. Hi, I'm here in the corner. Yeah, <laughs> And we and we are not only at the Overland Expo West, but we are in, because of the gracious consideration of Mike McMod, we are in his beautiful Earth Roamer LTI, a beautiful vehicle, and it gives us the chance to have a little more space. So we're recording it here at the event, and we have Duncan Barber with us. And Duncan is someone who I have looked up to for well well over a decade since I heard his story and I learned about his involvement with the Camel Trophy. Um, he's known as one of the true gentlemen's within the space. I've never heard a ill word spoken about him because he's really built a reputation of not only experience but global travel. Duncan was the global event coordinator for the Camel Trophy, and now he's part of the Seven P team. And he has literally launched vehicles like the Jeep Wrangler in Africa and other events around the world. Traveled around the world, Duncan. Thank you. So so much for being on the
1: podcast thank you very much scott uh, that um the introduction is way way beyond what uh, what i would expect and um, i i feel very honored that you say that sort of thing. yes i mean yeah. we can start over and be more insulting <laughs> yeah well no please I'm, I'm more used to the insults please nobody says those sort of things
0: <laughs> oh and now a word from one of the supporters of our podcast Red Arc. At Overland Journal, we go off grid every chance we get. From the most technical trails to crossing continents, it's no match for Red Arc's Topro Elite. This brake controller has been torture tested in the toughest place on the planet, the Australian Outback. Easy to install, its dash mount remote head makes for quick calibration and ensures you won't be hitting your knees. You can seamlessly switch between proportional for the highway and user controlled for the steepest, most rugged trails out there. You may not trust the terrain you're on, but you can always trust. Red Arc's Toe Pro Elite. Toe with confidence by visiting redarcelectronics.com. Well, one of the things that I am fascinated to learn a little bit about is what events happened in your life? What decisions did you make in your life that led you to the point of being able to be a global event coordinator for the Camel Trophy? Talk about that.
1: I suppose it's 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 kind of a well, it's a, it's a long story obviously because I'm 6 years old now, <laughs> but um, what led up to that? I mean, the the first thing that happened was I mean, I, I come from a family of petrol heads anyway, so I've always had an interest in, in vehicular travel and that kind of thing. My great, great uncle was the first person to drive a, a vehicle up Ben Nevis, um, which probably you could almost describe as, as one of Ford's remote, um, uh, off road PR exercises, okay. not that Ford had anything to do with it. Uh, but my, um, that part of my family ran the Ford dealership in Edinburgh okay. uh, cool. during the war and stuff. So they had a lot of military vehicles coming in and things like that. And, uh, in the board table one day, my, I suppose he would have been my great, great. Great uncle turned round to his seven sons, who were also part of the business, and said, um, "We need to do something to promote how good the Model T Ford is. I want you to drive it up Ben Nevis." And how tall is Ben Nevis? Is oh, it's not tall compared to yeah the, yeah your yeah. mountains, but it's the highest mountain in in, in UK. Okay, uh, height wise, I can't actually. I should know how high. It I know I've driven by it. Oh yeah, yeah L- I mean, it's at least a couple hundred feet. Is oh, it's at least yeah. a couple <laughs> hundred <laughs> feet? Dozens and dozens of feet. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. The, so about the height. of this earth rover that we're in
1: yes yes <laughs> no, not quite silent. um but anyway it's a pretty major feat there's there is a track that goes up or at that time there was there was a well there's still a track that goes up it because lots of people walk up it but sure there was a, a kind of horse track that went up to the top because there was an observer um, a meteorological station up there okay but a vehicle but had never done it vehicle had never done it it's always been horse and cart going up amazing there. um so i uncle harry was um was tasked with that and he went ahead and did it. I, and it was pretty, I mean, even today, I mean, there's only been a handful of people done it. He was the only person to have done it twice because 10 Mm. years later, they decided to do it in the model Ford. Um, Incredible. Yeah. So I can't, that's kind of my, you know, I kind of feel I've got off-roading in my genes. That pedigree. Based on that pedigree. Yeah. Um, But it was a major feat. It would be a major uh, uh, achievement now in a modern day vehicle. You would still, Have quite a few problems in a few areas. I mean, he made bridging ladders to get across bits of the burn. They were blowing up peat hags to try and create a route through them. I mean, obviously you couldn't do that now, but there is some archive material on um, on on YouTube, uh, which is one in one of the BBC archives, and you can actually uh, Google it and see (laughs) see them doing it. And there is a shot looking from a distance, looking at some guys poking. booking into the, the the shelf of this peat hag um, and the next thing scurrying away it's all like it's all, all in, in high speed motion <laughs> scurrying away and then they blow it up and <laughs> the next thing the vehicle drives through well there you go yeah and that's how you get to the top that's how you get yeah. to the top he was using traction aids they weren't max tracks I'm sorry to say well, I uh, but I'm, s- can, I'm sorry we weren't there at the time well if you had been that would have done <laughs> the job I, I he they wrap rope around the rear wheels oh, wow. of the thing to, as, a, as an extra traction aid that's um, Um, And there was places where I remember dad telling me some of the story. There's places where they, it was so steep. They reversed up because um, reverse gear was lower than, first gear sure so they reversed up bits and pieces
0: well and that would also help get traction essentially yeah. to the front yeah which is where the weight would be yeah. as well so yeah so they loaded up the back and of it. didn't yeah. the
2: model t have a hand throttle
0: like they're oh. they're, they're, they're different to drive than yeah not, than a modern car i've never driven one but i've heard they're really complicated actually yeah, yeah. hard so to drive they're yeah. quite hard to drive yeah, yeah. And you have to adjust the points and stuff as you're going along. I think it's
1: quite, yeah, yeah it's quite a feat. That. To, yeah. That's amazing. So yeah, that, that's kind of genetics, but that kind of gets away from your question, which was what led up to camel trophy. And I guess that, you know, I, I, my first experience in a four wheel drive was back in when I was 10 years old. My dad taking me out in a Land Rover, a series, an old series three that we had in mm. a, a field and I, just ragging it around there. And gradually because uh, he worked in the plant, he had a plant hire company. I, you know, I had access. I used to go in on a Saturday morning and work with mechanics in the, in the workshop there mm. doing all the, you know, kind of grotty jobs, scraping rust off chassis and power washing things. But I, I had access to seeing them rebuilding engines and we were putting tracks on machines and all sorts. So I, uh, and as an aside of that, I was able to drive whatever was in the, the yard at the time. Mm. You know, that's where, uh, you know, a lot of that driving experience came from, then moved on to working on farms and driving tractors, sending up to, you know, combine harvesters, pea viners, that sort of thing. And it wasn't until, I mean, you know, I was doing off-roading in my job, but I mean, the UK isn't a big place to go off-roading, especially in Scotland because all the land is private. So we don't have access to the kind of amazing spaces and, and drives that you guys can go on in the Mm. the US we just don't have that in the UK don't you have like a green lane well there's green lane stuff in in England Mm. but not in 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 Scotland interesting in fact the last one which was the um, Kodiak Pass which was an old part of General Wade's military roads that was eventually closed down and I think my brother was one of the last people to drive drive that there's really nothing left Mm. left to do unless it's on private land Um, but 1980 eighty five I saw an advert in four wheel drive magazine in Scotland. And it was a full page advert uh, with a camel trophy um, lozenge at the top, which of course in its own right immediately pulls your eyes to it. And it was an advert looking for uh, applicants to apply for the first British team on camel trophy in 1986 in Australia. So that kind of caught my eye and I thought, oh, because of course it all started off thousand miles of adventure, you know, the ultimate off-road challenge kind of thing. And I thought, oh, I'd quite like to try that. So I applied for it and was lucky enough to get chosen to be one of the final, uh, well, not the final one, but I got down to the last, I think it was about 40 of us mm. and the information came back. All they gave you is a map reference. You have to be at this map reference at this time on the state. Um, That's so cool.
0: Yeah. That was it.
1: (laughs) And I remember uh, I mentioned it to a farming friend of mine, a guy who um, I used to service for in his rally car and I knew the family, they're a big farming family in East Lothian. And I said, Oh, I've got, I'm I'm heading off to this thing called camel trophy. And he said, what, you you mean the selection thing? I went, yeah. He said, I applied for it. Well, he hadn't applied for it. His wife had applied for it for him. (laughs) And and so off we headed, we headed back together. And, fun. and actually, that was for the 86 event. And actually, Ronnie and I, I found out afterwards when I was working on the event that they were looking at Ronnie and I as quite a strong team. Sure. And we both got down to the last six, but never made the cut as uh, the final two members or the two standby members of the team. Sure. And it wasn't until many years later when I actually was working for Camel Trophy that I found out that part of the reason was that they felt that they couldn't from an advertising and PR perspective they couldn't have two Scotsmen <gasps> in the British team. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah that was that was a different time even yeah. then yeah. yeah so interesting so that's kind of how I ended up on trophy I was a finalist for the British team three three years on the trot each time getting down to the last the last cut of six sure and eventually I kind of said well you know three times if I can't get into the team now I'm, I, I don't think I'm going to get that far I knew they would keep it asking me back if I wanted to sure. apply um, but I felt no it's time for me to step down and let someone else have that mm-hmm. chance because that's the way I looked at it I said well if i'm getting i'm getting this far but not making the final cut then someone else might be able to make that and actually get in so sure and I said to them, you know, I'll, I'll step back from this, but if you ever need any help with, you know, selections or training or anything like that, because by this time I've been through three rounds of training with Land Rover and all the guys there and sure. obviously been learning more and more about the basics of, of driving properly off-road. And I thought, well, you know, I think I'd have value for them as a as part of the selection process. What was your first job? What did they hire you to do first? Well, I mean, after, after that, I, I ended up um, heading out to South America. I went out to the Middle East for First and then South America working for a company called Exodus Expeditions. And I was driving um, an overland truck for them. Actually, probably what you could describe as the first overland vehicles like this. Mm. So it was a Bedford truck, probably about 10-12 ton rated. It had a big box on the back, but really primitive compared to what we're sitting in today. Sure, uh, Big box in the back with bench seats, windows like this. Um, there was, uh, up above, there was um, kind of just hanging nets for soft stuff and under each of the seats, each passenger had some room to put their bag and their belongings and then the other boxes were taken up with dry goods for for food sure um when you went outside the truck uh at the front of the the main passenger compartment or maybe I should call it the habitat <laughs> as we do i it had a what we called the dog box that was full of tents um which the well the crew the people on the truck were were using to to sleep in and then we went to the side there was also a water tank there which proved very useful once when we were getting shot at um, down a nasty track and Somewhere in Argentina, or it might be in Venezuela. It's going back a long time. Um, so you had a water tank there for potable water. And then down below the truck hanging alongside the chassis, we had uh, a cook box which you opened out that had all the pans in it. And as you mm. opened the door out, four burners on that oh, cool. for gas. That that was it, you know? So you, you were... The driver, I was dri- driver and guide. Yeah, yeah. driving around South yeah. America. Yeah, amazing. So we did. Uh, we started in Bogota, Colombia, and we would do. I think it was nine countries. In uh, you'd start one trip going clockwise, and mm. the next trip you go anti-clockwise. Mm. And each trip was about four months. And how long did you do that for? I did that for just over a year. And then I got a call from Ian Chapman, who was one of the guys that I'd been been through selections with, who was now working on the event. Uh, He was the event manager. And he'd asked me if I could help with bringing in trucks. And he knew I was out in in South America and asked if I could help with bringing the the Land Rover vehicles into Manaus, which is where the event was starting from in 1989. Um, And I said, well, yeah, I'd love to help Ian, but um, I'm in the middle of a trip and I can't. I can't really just, I can't just step off the truck and leave these passengers in Brazil when I've got to get them up to <laughs> Colombia. <laughs> sure. And uh, he said, well, listen, we're looking for, we're looking for someone to to assist me. And he said, I think you'd be ideal for the job. When are you back in Colombia? When can you be home? And I said, well, if you think there's definitely a chance of, of a job, I'll, I'll send, put my resignation in now to Exodus. And I said, I'll be back in Columbia whenever it was. I'll book a flight home and come straight into the offices in um, London for an interview. Wow. So, um... And that was that. That in itself was strange because I remember Ian saying to me, um, he said, "You know, when when you first arrived, because bear in mind, I've been I've been out on the road for yep. over a year." Um, I so I arrived with a backpack, <laughs> kind of had a you know a, a Venezuelan style cowboy hat on. <laughs> I was probably looking pretty scruffy, uh-huh. and there were that, that was me walking into uh, R. J. Reynolds Tobacco, R. J. R. Tobacco, in London, in um, a place called uh, Midian House, which was right next to. Uh, Parents' house where the Queen Mother was staying, <laughs> and I walked in and and uh, said, "I'm I'm in for an interview with Ian Chapman and Duncan Lee and the." Secretary looked at me and went really. <laughs> and she phoned up and she said, "There's someone very scruffy at the front door wanting to see you." And he said, "Oh, that'll be Duncan." <laughs> so I went up, had my interview, and Duncan Lee, who's in charge of sponsorships and special events, said, "Yeah." And that was that was me starting a week oh, later. Fantastic. Literally, I, I, probably a fortnight later, I'd, I'd gone home, seen 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 the family, and a fortnight later, I was stepping onto a, a plane heading out to to Moscow and then out to Arctus and rats in Siberia to start working on setting up the event for, um, uh, for 1990. Amazing. Yeah. And there was mentions of KGB at that event. Yeah. Well, yes, because we, that was right at the start of per- the whole perestroika and Glasnost thing happening in, in Russia um, or the Soviet union as it was at that time. Mm. Cause we kind of, uh, as we, the event progressed, we went through that whole cusp. It was a difficult event set up as well because the Russians obviously saw us coming in as an American tobacco company mm. there was dollar signs there for them um and we clearly had money to spend to set the event up it was mm. the first motorsport event ever to to happen there we were bringing journalists from all around the world which was completely alien to to the soviet union as well uh, we were bringing all our own comms equipment uh, mm-hmm. Satellite uh, communication stuff, radio. So naturally, there was quite a big interest from the KGB, and we know for a fact that um, there was there were KGB people assigned that were there with us. Although nobody ever said, you know, so and so, you know, Yuri there is from KGB, but <laughs> yeah, you, you would expect it. Yeah. yeah, you knew because he was packing a gun, and uh, you know, <laughs> it, it, was it was for the bears. People, yes, <laughs> yeah. that's what he used to say actually. <laughs> but that, that was that was a really an, uh, interesting event, and it was going up uh, the permissions and stuff were going up as high as Boris Yeltsin at that time incredible so yeah yeah we had some very strange meetings you know I remember the Russians trying to charge pencil fees for journalists so they want to charge for everything oh yes journalists will have pencil to write with so we'll charge you a pencil fee for that and then there'll be a camera fee for that and and I remember some of the negotiations starting off at millions and millions of dollars and we kind of Gradually work them down to, um, sure. to lower figures. We secured things like, uh, um, we hired two Antonov, uh, 124s to move all the vehicles from. Uh, from the UK out to Brats, where the the event started, um, and that was a major number in itself. When they arrived sure. at Farnbury Airport, that was the first time Russian military aircraft had ever landed on British soil. Incredible! It's uh, crazy. Yeah, I mean the whole we thing. We need to is- get you a T-shirt. I've hired an now <laughs> <laughs> Can
0: I get one too,
2: please? Oh yeah, you've done that. Yeah. Apparently, I'm the only one that has. Well, yeah, that's yeah. soon enough. Soon enough. Oh look, it's raining for the people outside of the Earth roamer.
1: Oh yes, <laughs> we didn't even notice. So yeah, I mean that was a major achievement. They brought their own brass band with them because it was such a big thing for them as well. Uh, it was piloted by top brass from the, the Russian military. Of course, in in Russia, the military run the air air force as well. Um, they were virtually brand new aircraft. Wow! Um, so we're all spick and span. And when they arrived, I mean at that time they had uh, no credit cards, or no mobile phones. In fact, I didn't even have a mobile phone at that time. They weren't even around in ninety, if I remember. It's kind mm. of a wee bit later. The bricks appeared. The big the sure. Of the box. Yeah, they arrived and and we put them up in hotels. I we gave them money. We took them to a supermarket, and that was apparently that I wasn't there when they they did it. But the PR company took them out to supermarket to spend some of the money that they'd been given. And when they opened the doors, <laughs> everyone just went whoosh, different directions. They thought, "Oh my god, actually, what if some of these folk just decide to defect?" Ooh, sure, there was there, there was that that kind of
0: concern. No question. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, they just would fade into the distance. distance
1: yeah, but they all came back fortunately. Yeah. Wow. Um but that was that was a, that was a hell of a an event, I have to say. That was oh, I can imagine. Quite, quite interesting. And what was what were some of the
0: highlights of the Russia event that you can think of from oh, the actual competition?
1: Things like staging all the teams and uh, we did all the vehicles by this time were out in Bratz because we'd flown them there. But the teams came into Moscow before going out to Brats for the start of the event. I think having that whole, th- we, we managed to close off St. Peter's Square where the mm. that big church is with all the, the beautiful balls on the top. Oh, of Red Square. Yeah. Red Square, that yeah. was it. So we closed that off and we're Able to have a, a big function there, and uh, I think I've you know, seen that photo with all the. You, you will have done, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. So that, that's you. That's, that, that's cool. That was pretty <laughs> special. And then. As far as dramatic starts, it wasn't quite the same as likes of Tanzania, where we drove for two hours out of the the city and the roads were just lined with, they reckon there was millions of people lining the roads as we drove out of the the city for the Dar es Salaam for the uh, start of the event. Oh, wow. Um, But Russia was just, no one kind of ever dreamed that you could. Go and do that in Russia at that time. So, from a, an event organization perspective, that mm. was that was pretty incredible. Especially when you think it was just it was you know it was quite a really small core group doing it all. Hmm. and setting it up. And what area of Siberia was that? Well, that was Eastern Siberia, I think okay. it was. So we went out, flew out to Bratsk and then we basically went, it was Lake Baikal, basically. Oh, Lake Baikal. Yeah, sure. so we, we started in Bratsk and basically worked our way around Lake Lake Baikal to Irkutsk. Yeah, so, and then you flew them back out of Irkutsk. And then we flew them back
0: out of Irkutsk. And you would have had to have taken the ferries across, across the, the River Aldan at that
1: point. I know, well, we never actually, that. we didn't go that way. I think we we took the southern, it's a long time ago now, we took the southern route around Baikal and it kind of followed existing tracks. And then we used a lot of the, the old kind of gulag roads that had mm. been built by prisoners of war. Mm. So at one point we're driving along tracks where, you know, you could see the remains of the wood that was underneath there. And and part of that was really difficult because normally nobody drives in those areas because they're called winter roads because they're all frozen in the winter. You can travel them, but come the summer, they're not great. I mean, we did spend two days driving a river at one point uh, to try and avoid a section that was, that was almost impassable, but true camel <laughs> trophy style. We always managed to, Find a route around the most difficult bits. So that that yeah, I mean that was that was quite good. And there's pictures of long streams of camel trophy vehicles going down a river with people sitting on the bonnet spotting the big rocks and things underneath the water. So, like you just couldn't do that now. No, oh, absolutely, and it's fact, crazy. It's just like perfect timing, perfect place. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, you know, recently I had a question posed for me posed to me by a manufacturer, which was if you were to run a Camel Trophy event now or in 2022, for instance, what would it look like? Mm. So you think back to all those classic pictures on Trophy and the things that made it look spectacular, like, you know, vehicles uh, on a side slope with a, you know, a big banking on on one side and everybody hanging off the side of them to try and keep them on four wheels. (laughs) We couldn't do that now because of health and safety. You know, you, you, all those kind of things. You know, people jumping on the top of the roof racks and things like this. You can't, you can't do that. Even the closeness of 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 winching operations and stuff like this, and where we're trying to move vehicles quickly through through areas because of health and safety, you'd have to be going. Well, you can't really do that. Or you, as the organizers, would have a duty of care to ensure that nobody got hurt. And of course, we had that duty of care back then, but the health and safety side of it wasn't as robust as it is now. Mm. So you wouldn't, you know, someone jumping onto the side of a, of a 110 and holding onto the roof rack, you just couldn't do that. Right at the beginning of the training, you'd, be able, you'd have to say, well, you can't jump on the side of moving vehicles. But I would also submit that you had some of the most accomplished drivers and athletes in the world did you really have that many bad injuries no we didn't actually i do i do think that was down to the training that we got we got from land rover so the driving training side of it and also the training that was done by all the, the individual camel trophy markets and the training that we did at the international selections where we brought them all into one place and put them through various selection processes to assist each of the markets to work out which two out of the four that had come would be the, the actual team members mm. and and safety was what we did drum safety in there all the time and awareness and trying to make sure that a bit like what we do with the 7P training as well is trying to get people to make good decisions about what they're doing. We're also talking about good decisions about what equipment they're buying as well you know with regards to 7p side of training on camel trophy you didn't have to worry about that because all your equipment was supplied to you we didn't have the majority injuries on an event would be Cuts, some lacerations, which would be, you know, would be stitched up at, at, at the time, lots of bruises, you know. I mean, the guys were fit because they had been training for it. And, you know, I even remember going back to when I suddenly realized that getting selected for Trophy, you had to be, you know, you had to be, you had to be an all rounder on a variety of things, but you also had to be fit. So I would do a lot of running training and stuff like that mm. for a, a selection. The teams, the, the teams were generally, they were pretty fit and they were looking out for each other. I mean, you know, the one thing about Trophy was, this this brotherhood almost. People were looking out for other people on the trail. You know, mm. so we were what you know in between competition time, everybody in trophy was one big team. Mm. Um and that's how you know camel trophy was able to get through some of the conditions that we got through you know whatever the whatever nature threw at you whatever that country threw at you with regards to how difficult the roads could be we got through because we had the manpower to be able to build bridges or rebuild bridges we had the manpower to pull vehicles i mean remember, i remember on the Tanzania event we started off the rains hadn't come and within 24 hours of starting the event the rains came they hit that black cotton soil and that just turned to you know massive amount of gloop mm-hmm. and i remember on this I think it was the second or third day of the event we're going through a section where there was no there was nowhere to put winches out to you know no proper anchor points the ground was really too heavy and thick to be digging ground anchors in and plus you would be doing it all the time anyway we didn't have the likes of you know the pole pals or anything like that although I think the US team carried a pole pal okay and I remember coming across Canary Islanders and I saw these feet sticking out the windows because they would they'd been trying to drive through the night they were absolutely knackered am I allowed to say knackered yeah I guess i said it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they, I got up to the car and I've said, said much worse. <laughs> have you? Oh, that's good. Um, I got up to the car and I said, What's going on, guys? And they went, Oh, well, you know, we're a bit tired and we can't, there's nowhere to winch to and there's not another vehicle there. I said, But you know, you've got straps and ropes in the car. Well, what, what can we do with them? I said, You're gonna pull it. And that's what I did. I, I got I, you know, all the there was quite a few teams kind of stuck back to back. And I got I rallied them all together and I said, Right, the only way through this is you're gonna have to pull your cars. And that's what they did. Amazing. So, you know, and, and, but that was at the beginning of event. By the end of that event, you know, we went from the, all these fresh looking, fairly pale looking folk who had not been in a jungle environment like that. And by the end of the three weeks of that event, when you came out at the other end in Burundi at Bujumbura they were, they looked completely different. The transformation was, was amazing. You had a really cohesive group, a team. And, you know, further on, they wouldn't have thought twice about, oh, we'll just get those, those ropes out and we'll just pull these for you through this <laughs> oxen yeah they, they were oxen exactly <laughs> camel trophy oxen <laughs> matt there's got to be some questions
0: burning in your mind after loving the camel trophy yeah i mean uh- how did you choose the
2: route for for that? I mean, you know, Camel Trophy was, I was alive, but very, very little, <laughs> Early, very, <young. laughs> very, very young. So a lot of it for me, I never got to like follow it necessarily. You yeah, know, I was more like G4 that I could follow yeah. and, and that kind of stuff. So when you're going to a country like, let's say Tanzania, hmm. what did you look for? I mean, were you going on roads? Were you you know, cross-country, you know, no road travel. Like, what, what were the objectives?
1: How are you well, planning that? I mean, obviously, you know, it, it was a PR event for, you know, originally for cigarettes. And then laterally, after 1992, when they went through the whole trademark diversification thing because of the ban on cigarette advertising in Europe, uh, it was An an event to promote Camel Trophy watches, adventure wear, boots, bags, clothing, etc. Adventure watches. Adventure watches. Named by (laughs) cigarettes. Yes, I know. I know. But they were quite clever in what they what they did because they knew the Camel Trophy itself I mean even when the first event started in 1980 which was run by RJR Germany as soon as that Camel Trophy brand came out as in the lozenge there came out and that was put on clothes and and other items people were desperate to get hold of it because they knew if I have this badge on my you know on my t-shirt people are going to associate me with that great adventure that Mm, happened out there it was subliminal advertising obviously for the, the company but I, and and some of the people wearing it probably didn't even smoke. I don't know. But certainly, they, they were, there was a hunger for being associated with the lozenge. I, camel for the longest lozenge. time. I had
2: no idea that the Camel Trophy was a cigarette thing. I, like really? I had
1: no idea. Like, really? I, I thought it was
2: just like I don't know, like Camel, like it's like yeah, like it was in Africa. I was a yeah. kid from the Midwest. Like, I don't know. There's like camels there, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, they they saw that value in it. Um, uh, so, choosing where the event went. Obviously, it had to be a challenging route. The countries themselves had to want our first point of call when we started thinking about where would we take it would be to phone the uh, to try and get and go through the tourist side of things because obviously the promotion of the event would promote the country as well. So you'd go straight into the tourist mm. department of government and try and get to the whoever was the director or whoever was in charge tourism, and then it would be a matter of looking at where it looked remote. I mean, quite often it was literally, it was just a map on a desk and, um, you know, where could we go, you know? (laughs) That, gonna, that looks interesting. interesting. What's going to take <laughs> us three weeks, <laughs> you know, go out and start wrecking the routes. Tanzania, Burundi was actually quite a rushed event because prior to that, we'd been looking at going to India mm. up into uh, the Himalaya type Incredible. area up there. And they went out and did a recce and it proved just proved to be too busy. Mm. Um, there was just too many people about and it was difficult to get that feeling of remoteness. Although sure. it is there. Of course, it's there, but it just didn't work for the event. So India was kind of knocked on on the head very quickly, and and I remember Ian going going straight, literally he came out of India back to UK for less than a week and straight out to Tanzania to, to look at a route, route there. Where wow. did you guys go in Tanzania? We started off in Dar es Salaam and went through the Sulis game reserve and then we went up into another one that kind of headed north, uh, northwest up towards Burundi and we just kind of kept on going in that direction. Yeah, so, Matt, uh, Matt just returned from Yeah, just just back. All right, okay. Mm. Tanzania. Yeah, fantastic place. So many animals. But, so yes, a so, yeah, <laughs> lot of animals. We didn't, uh, you know, there's times where we saw animals. And certainly in the morning after camps, you would see lots of <laughs> footprints. And Tom Collins got some great stories about elephants walking through camp in Tanzania. <laughs> That's so, crazy. But that was a challenging event because the rains hit so hard and then the convoy became split up. We spent literally days and days winching, mm. getting through. And at one point we kind of passed fairly close to a, a railway track uh, which was quite handy because one of the we had a gearbox going on a vehicle and that had to be brought out from Dar es Salaam a wow. spare gearbox which we changed in the field wow. and they brought it out, <laughs> out in one of those little kind of <laughs> carts that um you know inspection carts. It's like a different world. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. That's and incredible. The guys yeah. have made a cat scrape in the ground pulled the vehicle over the top dropped the gearbox out underneath uh, we got the spare one in. Did uh, you make the team responsible for swapping that out, or did you have technicians there to? We there was always uh, there was a workshop vehicle mm. um, which Land Rover had certain kit in you know we didn't expect to lose a gearbox otherwise they might have been carrying one with us but then again we could always fly one in if if, mm. if we could but getting helicopters in tanzania was was a difficult one and in fact the last time i saw the helicopter there he'd come in i think dropped the enchantment off who'd, who was well well in advance of all of us he'd come in for something went away again and then that helicopter flew off and then crashed so that was quite a close one you know That's from crazy. the perspective of losing a, you know a, a, a major member of the the team, yes. Where was it going with that one? Oh, the good stories. It was a good, good story. <laughs> it was just um, a good I, So yeah, we got split up completely. Oh yeah, winching. I we were in a big marshy area, but there was a, a railway track running alongside it, and that was really the only place where we could get an anchor point. So everyone <laughs> kind of pulled themselves up to one side of it, we're hooking onto the 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 ties on the railway, Incredible. winching themselves along the side. Incredible. And eventually, we got some firmer ground. We were able to carry on driving, but we ended up in a survival situation there water we ran out water well, oh. ironically because it was so wet i remember uh, filtering water through um, socks and t-shirts to get all the, the stuff out of it and then we'd catadine into our mm. and that was just water running down the down the trail and then we catadine into the uh, into our jerry cans to keep us going incredible thanks to this week's
0: sponsor GCI Outdoor whether you're heading out for a weekend of adventure in the woods or to your backyard fire pit GCI Outdoor gear is ready for whatever you have planned. GCI Outdoor has been around for 25 years, so they know what they're doing when it comes to the best in portable recreation gear. GCI has innovative products ranging from outdoor rockers to complete camp kitchens and everything in between. And with a limited lifetime warranty, you know they stand behind everything they make. GCI Outdoor gear is comfortable, durable, and built for adventures, big and small. Try them out for yourself. Head over to their website at gcioutdoor.com and save 10% off your first purchase when you sign up for their email list. Thanks again, GCI. There is a story that I've heard about the camel trophy that I'm sure you can verify or not verify or dismiss. <laughs> there is a, a technique that I heard that was used a river crossing where you have all the vehicles on one side of the river Mm -hmm. and the river is essentially too deep to drive. Yes, And so they would, they would get a boat or they would get people to, to get across the river to a big pulley block and there'd be a huge rope. And then, so the rope would be now through a pulley block on a tree on the other side of the river and they would hook three or four Land Rovers together. They would connect to the front end of one Land Rover. They'd all haul but away from the river and that would essentially ski (laughs) the the Land Rover across to the The other side.
1: And uh, I'd, I'd love to know if that actually happened. Yeah, I don't. It could have done. And certainly that's a technique that you, well, not so much to ski it, but a technique that you could have used to ensure that you got your first vehicle across because yeah. you're using a much bigger anchor on this side. Yes. Um but certainly we on really deep crossings where there was a risk that you might not get across or or you're worried about the vehicle beginning to float off down the river we would certainly have one vehicle going through with a line attached to another mm. one at the back to either pull it back If we had a problem, or for it to be an anchor. Okay. Um. I never saw that system of a pulley block being put in the other side, and then say attached to three vehicles to pull the first one through. Uh, But certainly, if you think about it, that actually is a quite a good idea. If you had no other option of being able to get your vehicle through, because if you got it low enough, like
0: on the front axle, for example, it would actually kind of pull like
1: planes. Yeah, I suppose you could almost conceptually. It is conceptually. But remember, those vehicles were so heavily; they were so heavy. Yeah, I mean four people in them. Yeah, all the food for you know up to three weeks, water, um, some spare parts. They were they were heavily loaded vehicles, well and over what they should have been. Really, how much weight would be on the top? Oh, well, top actually didn't have a lot. They okay. there was, there it looked was a, like it though. Yeah, it looked like it. Well, it was it was a pretty heavy roof rack because mm. the the whole thing was designed that we potentially could pick the vehicle up by the the roll cage and roof rack. Mm. Because that all went through to the roll cage underneath, and the roll cage went through to the chassis. Mm. So it was it was designed specifically like that. So as if you had to, you could pick a, a trophy vehicle up by the roof roof protection. That's so cool. Um, yes. yeah. But the roof rack itself just had uh, four pelican cases in it. A spare tire, a, a kind of caged area with a bit of a tarp over it mm. that held that you could put some of your recovery gear in, like your the, the hook ropes that we mm. carried. So we had polypropylene ropes with hooks on the end, which mm. were designed as for towing or for using round a tree and stuff like that. In fact, our recovery gear was pretty pretty basic. Mm. when looking at what we can get now yeah the innovations in the last 10 years even exactly and none of it rated i mean i look back on it now and go oh my god you know (laughs) we're using unrated equipment yeah Um, that'll work i mean it did work and we didn't have well tanzania was another one we did break quite a few winch wires and i remember afterwards sending the wires back to super winch and saying can you some of the ones that broken can you check these and they all checked out okay they then did a test on the Husky super winches we were using came back and said, actually, our winches were pulling way more than uh, what the cables were rated for. And that's why we ended up breaking into on the event. Of so course. did they did they upgrade the, yeah, they the wire up, yeah, after that immediately? Super winch were fantastic to work with. Yeah, on the event we that's a, quite a winch that husky. Yes, it's great. It really is. It's worm drive, right? It's a worm drive winch. Yeah. yeah. So they were they, they were good. It was slow. I mean, the you know previous to that we'd been using Warren eight two seven fours, which are fantastic as well, but a very fast winch. And actually, for what we needed, we you know especially with with so many hands going into so many areas and so many people using the winches, having something slower was really Better, although yeah. at times. You know, I can remember one one section. It seems to be always going back to Tanzania, Burundi. Uh, we were winching across an area probably 150 200 meters long. It took us the best part of 20 plus hours to get the whole convoy through there. Incredible. And, you know, the we managed to get the first vehicle across, and as that started moving across, you'd move another one in, attach a winch wire to them. He would then pull that out. You know, once that vehicle stopped driving, he'd pull that out. Then you'd engage the winch, winch yourself up to that. The next one would winch forward. And it was kind of a whole piggyback operation to get to get everyone through. And how many vehicles were in the convoy? Well, roughly so you had roughly 18 to 20 competitor vehicles. Um, then we had two film because we were filming it on 60 millimeter for advertising purposes and cinemas and stuff like that. So you had a film crew in those two video vehicles. So that was all the PR and, and press release stuff that was going out um, immediately from the convoy. Um, we had the ambulance, we had the communications vehicle, which was, you know, SATCOM and HF and VHF radio. We had three coordinator vehicles. So one, two and three lead scout, event manager, PR vehicle. Oh yeah, we had two photographer vehicles as well so we Mm -hmm. had the um, the basic PR photographer, Lee Farron, was at, at that time, and then we had one for advertising photography. So there was a Tanzania Burundi. It was a guy called Hannes Schmidt, who's a, he still is a high end fashion photographer. Wow. Um, and his assistant in that car, I kind of lost count there. So maybe, a, it's, 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 it's some it's some of the region of twenty eight. vehicles. Gotcha. Wow. Oh, and then you'd have your raft unit vehicle if you needed a raft unit. So that was another vehicle. And on later convoys, they had two of those. Wow. So, and then the workshop vehicle, which had the Land Rover mechanics in it. So yeah, I mean, it was a a,
0: a big circus. One of the things that's interesting to me is people can get so focused on heavily modifying their vehicles. But when you look at what was accomplished with the Camel Trophy, now it's often said that the Discovery one and vehicles like that were this kind of perfect combination of wheelbase and the way that they designed the body and everything else. They were just very effective from the factory already for technical terrain, but they had essentially changed the springs to take the load yep but not really to lift it, only no. a little bit. As I understand it, they swapped out to the XCL tires. They fitted safety equipment and yep. winches, and they went on some of the most remote, rugged tracks of the world, basically as a stock vehicle. So the question that I have for you is, what do you see as the most essential changes? If someone goes out and buys a new Ford or Jeep Wrangler, or if mm-hmm. they go buy a new 4Runner, what would you say, these decades of experience you've had tra- traveling around the world, what should people consider, if anything- doing to those trucks?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. our vehicles were they weren't heavily modified. It was a Isn't standard what, 30 inch tires? No, it wouldn't even be 30 inch. I mean early yeah, you know, that. It was seven a, seven inches, seven inches wide. Seven, weren't they seven R16s? Yes, it was a 16 so, inch rim so. and and a skinny tire.
0: 16 plus 14. Yeah, yeah that's that is 30. 30. 30 inch tire.
1: Yeah. yeah. So maybe yeah, maybe it was 30 inch. So yeah we they they had XALs on them. They had a uh, front skid guard for the, the steering. Mm. There was no, no armor on the axles or anything like that. Standard heavy-duty shocks built for a, a normal you know heavier-duty cycle in the UK on roads and whatever lander would consider someone buying that vehicle would use off-road, which wouldn't be very much. Underbody protection on, on the fuel tanks. Nothing, nothing really elsewhere on, yeah. the, on the vehicle. Um, the roof rack. A roll cage, safety devices, roll cage, uh, the bull bar and winch. Mm. And that was it. A roof rack.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you talked about, you know, could you do this? This. This event could you do a camel trophy in 2022 or, or something like that? I mean, would you be able to get those iconic images because you know you had to put those vehicles in those precarious situations mm-hmm. to get them
0: through?
1: Yeah,
2: and now like well yeah, know, we didn't you take a four door jeep and it's I mean compared
0: to a it would be very yeah, yeah. four door jeep would be much more capable yes yeah I'll, although yeah. although I'll say this is something that you are famous for is that launch of the four door JK in Africa oh yes the yeah. number of journalists that still speak in hushed tones. about about the about your your trip because they said it was unbelievable oh, it was really? so challenging really? so technical
1: well for a journalist's trip they yes. said it was really unbelievable well we were uh the brief that was given to us uh see we're disappearing down another rabbit hole here, <laughs> i Kirby. like that uh, the brief that was given to us was um we want a camel trophy tight trip for this pre-production uh launch of this vehicle so we went and oh, we can give where, you that where was it It was in uh, South Luangwa National Park in Zambia, which is this beautiful, beautiful remote area uh, which is almost it's almost the same as if when Livingston walked through it wow. and, and it, it's just beautiful and we started up on the Machengi Escarpment drove down from there did some off-roading on the way they were flown in in private plane picked the vehicles up straight down to um, we headed down the, the, the Escarpment we did some off-roading on the way and then headed to a river camp on the Luangwa River which had been set up and then that camp moved the next day and then we got to the uh, game lodge where we then did more well we off it all the way down it was amazing it was amazing and yes it was it was challenging and we had some instances and um yeah but that's but that's what they wanted they wanted a you know a tough event so i guess to answer your question that if the
0: if the oem has enough fortitude to Mm. ask the question yeah it can be done yeah jeep is, as far as I know Jeep is really the last one to have asked that
1: question oh yes yeah so, I mean I haven't had another manufacturer ever say that to me and, yeah. and Jeep were you know they, they wanted to prove that that vehicle was good and I did the previous launch of that vehicle in Argentina ah. actually uh, which I know there's I've run across journalists who are on that trip and they still talk about that one as well oh. but it was a great trip I mean anything in Africa like that is is just And I, I, distract, Man, that, that I distracted sounds. him from that important question Yes. so okay.
0: like you know, if you were to take a forerunner or a Wrangler, what would you do what would you for, recommend as 7p what would you recommend people consider if
1: anything at all or you just well, say
0: go see the world yeah you, to well, go. you know
1: you know we're kind of keep it simple mm. team i mean look at our own vehicles none of them are really really heavily modified you know nicks rang uh, nicks um land rover 90 for instance i mean it's lifted probably got a two inch lift on it maybe Mm. uh he's got different he's got diff locks on it uh on trophy we didn't have any differential locks there was Mm. no there there was no slippery differentials in them or anything like that they were open differential vehicles you know when we ran we were old school left foot braking you know Mm -hmm. you want to stop that wheel spinning use the brake bit of throttle off you go and we still teach that technique now no one knows how to do that I have not heard of that technique, yeah. and so like I've heard of it. Yes. I've done it. Yeah, I yeah. had
2: a D one. Yeah. I just I, you never hear that stuff anymore. No, talk you don't about
1: because it. you don't have to. You've got traction control. Yeah. You've, most vehicles have got a diff lock in them. At least one, you know. I think people can go out in the most basic of vehicles. I mean, yes, you have to prepare. You want to make sure. You want to make sure your running gear is good. You know, and and you don't need it. And, you know, probably the the people at the expo would hate me for saying this. You don't need a lot of the jingly janglies that mm-hmm. we see out there. I mean, we see so many trucks coming through, and you sometimes think they've just gone through the of with velcro all over them. And it's going, a giant whoo- magnet. Giant magnets for just sure. grabbed <laughs> everything on. I mean, I'm sure I saw a truck come in the other day towing what looked like uh it was a trailer and it looked like it was a shower unit with a there was an aircon thing in the top it was kind of square i'm sure i'm sure it was a, a shower unit or a sauna or maybe a turkish bath
2: <laughs>
1: Something like that. but to get does, back- does this earth Roamer have a turkish bath i don't believe so no check check that door <laughs> <laughs> um but going back to your question i think for me the most important thing is training mm. get trained yeah. before you get out there you've got to be be able to make, you've got to have some, some information there to be able to make the right decisions mm. when you're on the trail and be able to make the right decisions about the equipment to buy as well. So that for me is the most important thing. The vehicle itself, the running gear has got to be good. You know, make sure that, you know, Tires, wheel bearings, differentials, your engine gearbox, etc. I mean, that's that's what moves you or that's what moves you once the floppy link is sitting between the seat and the steering wheel. Mm. And really, you know, the vehicle as it stands there, you know, looking out the window, we've got lots and lots of capable vehicles around us, but they're only as capable as the floppy link in there. Yeah. And actually thinking about it, some of, our, some of the vehicles we see now are so capable that they can get you into, they can get you quite far, yeah. but then into really difficult positions. And now you've got to work out how, you know, I'm halfway up a hill now because this vehicle with brake traction control or differential locks has crawled me all the way up here. And now I'm sitting sideways on this slope and I can't go any further. How mm. do I get back down safely mm. without rolling it? You will only know that if you've been taught the correct procedure to do it. Or you, or luck's on your side when you actually decide to come off the clutch and the brake, and you've forgotten to put in gear, and you career like a toboggan all the way down the slope.
0: And and that is the evidence from Camel Trophy is well trained individuals in a solid stock vehicle on some of the most remote and technical tracks in the world. And so that's evidence of that. And then it's also just more reinforcement of the fact that if you can get good training, like what you offer at 7P Overland, then people can do so much more with less. They'll, They'll understand what left foot breaking is. They'll Mm -hmm. understand what to do in a failed hill climb. They'll understand what to do when they need to actually put that winch to use in anger to get themselves out of something. We talk about that. Matt and I talk about that a lot on the podcast is that's why we talk about 7P a lot on the podcast is that people need to get trained and you're one of the few organizations that has multiple trainers available. That means you've got this broad spectrum Mm -hmm. of knowledge. I was talking with Nick, your partner in in the business the other day and and I said, I said, Nick, even though I've done this for so long, I only know 5% of what I want to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, but if you take a bunch of 5% and add it together and you yes. add it together, you yep. have a very powerful yep. team. Yeah. So you have Nick that has all this experience in the Sahara and in the sand dunes and then you have you with all this experience with teams and people and technical mm-hmm. challenges with stock vehicles and you just add up all of this yep. wealth of knowledge and you put all these guys together and ladies as well you have mm-hmm. many ladies on your team as well. It's an impressive result,
1: I yeah. think. No, it is and it's uh it's it's kind of that whole thing of the sum of the whole parts, yes. you know. Um I feel very honored to be working alongside so many People have got so many varied skills. Mm. I think is the USP. And you're all just nice. Yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah. I mean, it, oh, yeah. it's when you let the ego go a little bit. Yes.
0: yes. Yeah. yeah. I lot mean, lot like
2: nicer. I know a lot of four wheel drive trainers, and most of them are really nice people. There's some that are just like not the nicest people to be around. Well, like uh, they're yeah. very preachy. They're very yelly, and I yeah. feel that can be intimidating to a lot of people. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the things I appreciate so much about Seven P. Mm. That you're all just
1: friendly, oh, nice, you know, I'm, common sense people. Th- I always say treat people the way you want to be treated yourself. Yeah. Number one, you don't. You know, we're not a military organization. You don't teach people well by yelling at them, mm. or cussing at them or anything like that. Yeah. We would potentially already in a high pressure environment anyway, trying to solve something. You're not mm. going to achieve anything by by getting mad at them. You know, mm. that's that's how we kind of look at it. And also, we also look at it. You know, for me, every day is a school day. You know, I was I was in a class yesterday doing advanced bush mechanics. And actually, as soon as I started the class, as soon as I started the class, I was asked a question about uh, repairing cylinder head gaskets. Um, Do you know about doing it with savanna grass? And I went, no, I don't actually tell me more. So the class started off with one of the 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 uh, the pupils actually. Talking about something he'd read in a an old, I think it's a Series Three <laughs> in Africa manual, Land Rover Series Three oh, in Africa manual, and it. repairing a cylinder head with with grass. Now I've never seen that. I'll have to go out and and have a look at it. How but- would that work? You just like kind of like cut it up and. Well, make, I, I make a gasket apparently. Well, yeah. I, I think I think it, it would be about weaving rings, weaving it around, yeah, 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 and then just pulling the head down tight on those rings, separating your combustion chambers or your yeah, cylinders. Yeah, I guess the piston oil, would just chew through water. any of the grass that was, yeah. you know, if it was on the yeah. sides. Yeah, and it probably worked. Someone's done it, I bet. <laughs> yeah. But that's how the class started. So. The class started immediately with me learning something new. Mm. And that's the other thing about all of us within 7P is that all our instructors look on it, at, you know, every day is a school day. We mm. can also learn from you guys. Yeah. There's no, no question in our world that's a stupid question because mm. very often that question that's sitting in the back of someone's brain that they want to ask mm. and they think I'm not going to ask that because it's stupid actually leads on to, you know, questioning what's going on or could that work or, you know, what is that piece of equipment yeah. for? So you've got to be open to all these things and you've got to be able to debate them and, and, and go through the pros and cons and, and go, well, maybe that'll work, work fine for you.
2: Mm. You know,
1: there's always this, this feeling
2: that people get that they just have this God given ability to drive, right? mm -hmm. Like they, they don't need training. Oh, I grew up on a farm or this or that. And I was talking with Chris Walker last night, you know, about even me doing some more training, continuing education. I mean, well, you just, Scott just did Trek. Right. And, all right, how long had it been since you used a, a high lift jack? And then I realized, oh God, it's yeah. been, it's been like years yeah, since yeah. I've used a high lift jack. I, yeah. I've forgotten so much about, yeah. about that kind of stuff. And even if you are somebody that has been overlanding for a while, has been four wheel driving for
0: a while, it's been a lifelong hobby. You can always learn more. Yes, Absolutely. Definitely, yeah. Definitely, yeah. yeah, I hired a trainer to show me how to use a map and compass again. I used to know how to do that, mm-hmm. but to triangulate and how to, yep. to pull a bearing on a map and I needed to relearn all of yeah. those things and it it was
1: totally a joy for me to retune those skills. we all get rusty with stuff, you know, we all, you know, I felt coming into this show, having not done any off-roading and, or, and, and teaching for, for nearly two years, I kind of felt a bit rusty coming Mm. into this show, you know, Mm. and as we went into the first, um, classes of the day, I I was, I was actually really nervous. Mm. There was a lot of awkward handshakes when everybody got in like, uh,
2: hi, uh, (laughs) are we shaking hands? Are we we fist bumping? (laughs) I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's true. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot, that there is some people still a wee bit standoffish yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. But and that's fine. But no, I felt nervous going into first class because yeah. I haven't done it for two years. Mm. Fortunately, it kind of it feels like jumping back onto a bike. And because because the people who come to the show as well are here, they're here for one reason. That's to learn. Yes. So we don't kind of get numpties in the classes. Mm. And, you know, they're they, they want to learn, and and you know, again, we're very honored that they're coming to us to, to learn about it as well. And that means that when generally when you go into class, you know you're you're going to get questions mm. and the more questions that come out of a class the better because we just you know we've just got so many rabbit holes we can disappear down and then pop back out of and back onto the main subject of the class mm. and everybody goes away with stuff i mean at the end of yesterday's advanced bush mechanics class i said to myself oh guys one hack that i must tell you about which is the super glue and uh and baking soda one and uh, and and several of them went Oh my god, the money I've spent on this alone has been just worth l- learning about that uh, super glue and baking soda hat. You got to tell us the hack. Well, oh, you don't know it. Oh, it's it's uh, so you know sometimes when you use super glue, you go, "Oh god, I wish it would fill that space a bit better or I wish I could build it up." Well, if you take a drop of super glue, the first time I saw it was someone repairing the, the little uh, nodule that holds the arms on Oakley sunglasses. Okay. All right, you know how that wears and then finally the 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 leg just falls off well this guy took a drop of super glue onto where that peg was, dropped super glue, and then he dropped some baking soda on top of it. And then he did it again. And as soon as the baking soda touches it, it goes rock hard. And I mean rock hard. And so he built up, uh, he just built up a little column of super glue and baking soda, and then he filed it down to a peg and clipped his the leg of his sunglasses back on. Uh, so it, you can build plastic, essentially. Yeah, you can build plastic with it. It's, <laughs> it is absolutely genius. And I said, you know, because we were talking about, you know, what would you put in, your kit to go along with your tools. So, you know, we're talking about self-amalbifying electrical tape, um, electrical tie wire, you know, so as you you know, engineers tie wire that use for drilling through bolts and Mm. holding them in place, Uh, cable ties, plastic and stainless steel, uh, gaffer tape. Of course, everybody's got to have gaffer tape in there, all those bits and pieces. And I said, I now carry a, a, a small pill bottle with Super glue in it and some of this um, uh, baking soda. Incredible! So oh, now and, and, we now we know. Yeah, now you know. Yeah. It's all over. It's all over YouTube. Probably, so. A pill bottle of yes.
2: baking soda could be a little bit awkward. Well, at, uh, you at know,
1: I, military inspections in Baja. Funnily enough, that because I normally keep it in my in my day pack, and funnily enough. As I was going through the day pack prior to getting on the plane, I pulled out pulled it out and I went, hmm, white powder. What
2: I You know, you don't, could also roll it up in like a little bit of cellophane. That would yes. that
1: would never <laughs> <laughs> cause suspicion. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I, but the one thing I thought would would further reinforce the scary white powder in the pillbox is because I keep a big top in there. Okay. Because you can use the end of the big top as a tiny wee spoon. Okay. To drop it onto <laughs> fine, you know, if you're doing something really fine. And of course, that in itself looked a bit sketchy. So <laughs> no. I thought, no, I'm gonna leave that home because uh, customs and excise with uh, me on this. Uh, Matt, what uh,
0: what other questions you got for Duncan? Man, I've just been a fly in the wall here. It's this amazing. It's been so cool. It's been amazing. Um gee, I don't even know. Well, so maybe we maybe we ask that the one that we love to ask, which is if someone is about ready to go out on an overland journey let's call it down to Ushuaia. And they don't have a lot of experience and they came up to you to say, Duncan, you've been around the world. You've been doing this for decades. You've taught people
1: to travel around the world. What couple of pieces of advice would you give me before I left? I would say be ready to go with a sense of humor. You've got to have that. Treat people the way you treat yourselves and that's really important when it comes to likes of border crossings and things like that. You've got to remember that, you know, these folk probably aren't getting paid a lot of money. They sometimes get out of bed on the wrong side or maybe something happened at home and they might not be very pleasant when you meet them there so you've got to be able to work with that you've got to be flexible Mm. you've definitely got to have A plan you know plan a plan b plan c maybe plan d be aware you know not everybody's nice but Mm. the majority of people in this world are nice people and Mm. want to help but you do need to have a bit of awareness about you Mm. speak to other travelers on the road Mm. because they've always got current information engage with the locals that's important try and learn a bit of the language Mm. you know start off and you know good morning good night good afternoon some of the numbers, try and get that, you know, try and immerse yourself in that local experience if you can Mm, be prepared. Yeah. Expect the unexpected. Mm. Get trained. Get some training if you can. So, you true. Yeah, and, so true. And and learn about your, especially if you're traveling in a vehicle, learn about your vehicle. Mm. Get down to, I've said this quite a lot of times over the last few days, get down to your, to your local garage, you know, who would let you get underneath the vehicle. If you don't have a lot of mechanical knowledge, you know, go and do a service on the vehicle with them. Have a look at bits and pieces underneath.
0: I don't know if you remember this, Duncan, but this was 2012 and we had the Expedition 7 trucks. Yes. At the Overland Expo at Mormon Lake. And we were about ready to leave. We were, we were ready to leave. We had already gone down from Prudhoe Bay, but we were ready to head off to St. John's and start shipping the trucks around the world. And I asked you that question. I said, I said, Duncan, what advice would you give me? We were standing there right in front of the Land Cruisers. And you said, be good with the locals. And you said, Make sure that you have a good time. All right. Okay. Those are the two yes, things that you told yeah. me. And it, and what it made me realize was I had spent so much energy In planning, planning. Yeah. and so much energy training. All of these things, I had focused so much on execution of a plan that what I really needed to hear at that moment, and that's what you mm-hmm. told me. And it's probably because you knew that you, you knew me well enough that you said, make sure you have a good time. yeah Make sure you stop. And like they say, smell the roses or take a look at that sunset and, and enjoy, enjoy the adventure. And I, I was very
1: grateful for that advice because it was something that I needed to hear at the time. Yeah. You had a lot of responsibility on that trip. Yeah. And you do get bogged down with the planning. Mm -hmm. I think even on solo travelers heading out can get bogged down in the planning of Mm -hmm. it and wondering, you know, how are we going to manage this? How are we going to manage that? Sometimes you just got to go with the flow of what's happening. And yeah, yeah, she I think sometimes people trim. can over plan. Yes. You know, yeah.
0: oh, and, yeah. and I definitely did. And, and, and I just remember you just saying, you, I think you put your hand on my shoulder and you're like, Scotty, just remember that, have, oh, a good and have time. some fun. Yeah. Have a good time. Yeah.
1: And that's, you certainly sort of looked like you had, to. you had we fun did. on that Yeah, trip. it that was,
0: a, was an amazing adventure. It was an amazing journey for sure. And I'm, I'm so grateful for it. And we are, we're so grateful for you having been on the podcast.
1: We could, ha- I think we could have about 11 D7 more. Yes. <laughs> more podcasts. Let's do this
2: again next year. Yeah, well, always yeah. happy
1: to do that. No, it's been great fun. And it's, uh, you know, again, it's, it's just fantastic to be able to um, take my experiences and hopefully, mm. you know, through the podcast, people are going to listen to this and A, they'll, they'll think about Camel Trophy. And by the way, it's a great book just being produced. Yeah, nice. Nick Dimbleby. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Or so, should be at the office by the time we get back, I think. That's awesome. So, yeah. I can't so wait for it. I, I actually helped. Uh, Nick sent me the proof of it and I kind of did the bit from uh, are, read through and added more detail and corrected a few things mm. from 1986, 85, 85, 86 on to 94, 95, which is kind of when I left the event. And I put in touch with some of the, the old competitors like Beppe Guilini, who I'm hoping to bring to the Overland Expo wow. next year, who, uh, was on the 85 event. Um, wow. and also Beppe stands in two camps because he's a four wheel drive expert, but he's also a motorcycling expert mm. having done he's got the world record for having competed in the most uh, african safari most african safari rally um on bike and done 10 dakars incredible back in the- 10 Incredible. Back in the day when it was mapped. Does he compass. still have knees? Uh, yes, he does. Yeah, and he's still in, He's still instructing. He does a lot. He's a, he's a kind of brand ambassador. and He works for Ducati. Well, he oh. also runs his own company, but he helps with the development of the um, overland bikes. You yeah. know, this, well, there's that bikes. new one that's coming out from Ducati. Did you see that? Yes, I did. Yeah, I saw the yeah. tease. That looks really interesting. So Beppe would have been heavily involved in, in developing that. Bite. It looks good. Yeah. It looks like a Dakar. Book.
0: And what, what's the name of Nick's new book? Uh, I I think something it's, about, yeah, it has uh, camel, trophy so camel Trophy in the title. It's got
1: Camel Trophy in the title. Is it Camel Trophy through the years?
0: Might be. Yeah, or is that just... We'll put that in the show notes just to make sure that people can look
1: it up. It will go here. No, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> we'll, yeah, we'll put it on a title right about there. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's certainly got Camel Trophy in the title. Yes, it does. But it, it's out now. I think you can pre-order it on on Amazon. But it's got a whole load of photos in it which have never been seen before. I mean, I found stuff in kind of my archives of, of things that I picked up when I was at Camel which aren't even... I, doubt they, they, I don't even think that the negatives still exist for them. Wow. So I sent them down to to Nick. So there's a whole load of unseen photos there. Unheard stories because Nick's interviewed a lot of the the older competitors. Um not the older competitors, you know, Sure, people who haven't been interviewed and including interviews with people like um, Duncan Lee, who is my boss boss at at, uh, at Camel Trophy, who is looking after Formula One and Camel Trophy. So Incredible. some behind the scenes stories from there.
0: Mm. How do people find out more about you, Duncan? And how do people find out more about 7P Overland?
1: Our website, basically just uh, 7P.io or just Google 7P um, Overland. Uh, the information will come up there. I, I think we're we're revamping quite a lot of the, the website at the moment. Um, but any inf- information on our trips and our training and stuff like that are there. Um, you know, from a training perspective, we do anything from really basic to advanced. We can tailor make training for for people or companies. Um, same with holidays and stuff like that mm. or, or expedition style trips. So yeah, the information's there or just if you're listening to us here and we're out, in, out, yeah, out on out and exactly. the show. Um, exactly. But, yeah, that's the best way to. And then, how do people find out more about you?
0: Do you do you have an Instagram, or are you a much wiser soul than I am and not have one?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I I am on Instagram, but I haven't tried, kind of worked out how to use it properly yet. Good for I, you. I do. I do. More I do, reason he's more yes, reasons he's awesome. I do. Uh, I do Twitter, and it's uh. just I think my Twitter handle is just Duncan Barber. Okay. Uh, it's usually quite often. It's my the view from my office today is <laughs> I love it. Uh, I think I the last it. one was um, a picture out, out of a caterpillar d4 as we're making the track (laughs) oh that's good that's good so um yeah i do twitter stuff and obviously some of that's film related and sure that's um off-road related but yeah. I'm not yeah, it's finding time. So we found do someone that. at Overland Expo
2: that is not on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right.
1: I I just find he's I the don't he's have the, the original Italian.
0: influencer right yeah. here. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, and, and if you all didn't think Duncan was already extremely cool just based on this conversation, he also was part of the film crew or what Game was of it? Thrones, the Game of Thrones. Well, so. Yeah,
1: that was one, That's one of them. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, so yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what what an amazing life you have lived, and this will be the first of many conversations we will. have. Have with you on the podcast, Duncan. You're such an inspiration. You're a true gentleman. You you encapsulate so much of what we want this industry to continue to be, uh, which is people being good to each other, not buying too many things jingly their janglies. V- jingly janglies for their vehicles, and going and seeing the world. And you've done that for a lifetime. So thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure, guys. Um, thank you very much for having me, and uh, I I feel very humble with the words that you've said. I've, I, you know, I really do. But, Thank you. And I just want folk to go out there, have fun, be trained, make yeah. good decisions as to what you're doing and have fun. There you go. Yeah. Thank you and for that. You're most welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Duncan. And we will talk to you all next time.